I'm Agnes Frimston. And I'm Jacob Paraculus, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. So, regular and keen-eared listeners might, might recognise a different voice today. Ben is off swanning in Toronto. Swanning. <laughs> oh, sorry. Ben is swanning off in Toronto at the International Studies Conference. So, I have pulled in a dear friend of the podcast and deputy head of the US and America's programme here at Chasm House, Jacob Parakidis. Thank you so much for coming in. I'm very happy to. <laughs> to sit in our dark studio. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's dark. It's quite I was dark, tr- isn't it? I was, it's, it's a very good thing for us to have and it's quite dark in here. And cold. Um, but, you know, it keeps us, keeps us motivated or something. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think we should do a new dynamic potentially now. I don't know. Have have just some some random person from the uh, the staff of Chatham House come in and join and see how good they are at uh, <laughs> light dialogue and introductory chat. Yeah, where have you been on holiday, Jacob? How's nowhere. your lovely daughter? <laughs> My lovely daughter is awesome. I've been nowhere on holiday as a result of having a lovely daughter. Um, yeah, Jacob is not sleeping a huge amount at the moment. I think is that fair so to say? So if I am, I'm sleeping. Some, Some, I would say. I uh, in, in the category of people with nine-month-old children, I'm probably getting more sleep than most, but still less sleep than most people without nine-month-old children. Yeah. Oh, you know, but greatest thing you ever do, they say. It is. It is. And, you know, the my daughter actually greeted me when I came in to pick her up in the morning yesterday with what can only be described as a slow clap. <laughs> so she does not yet speak English, but she is completely fluent in shade. <laughs> Phenomenal! What had you done? That's why I went. Nothing. I come in to I come in to pick her up to change her and feed her her breakfast as I do most mornings, and yet this was the subject of significant infant sarcasm. Yeah. Okay. I mean, fair. She sounds she sounds on it to be honest. Yeah. Um. So yeah, some stuff's been happening in the world this week. Yeah, really, really quiet week in the U.S. Especially no, this is obviously a big week for the uh, the psychodrama and counterintelligence and justice drama, which has been gripping the U.S. for the last two years. Uh, which is to say, we we were informed through the Justice Department in the person of the Attorney General William Barr that the Mueller investigation has concluded. Um, but there's been a lot of misleading reporting about this. We have not seen the Mueller report. We have seen three sentences of the Mueller report partially exerted in the uh, the letter that uh, A.G. Barr sent to the House and Senate Judiciary Committees, um, the upshot of which is Donald Trump is not going to be indicted. Um, but that wasn't really the expectation, given that the Department of Justice guidelines are generally against indicting a sitting president. Um, the president, of course, claimed complete exoneration. Uh, there was a storm, an entirely predictable storm of uh, this justifies everything I've been saying for the last two years takes from the the Trump defending right, the Mueller defending center left, the Russia skeptical left, uh, and, you know, various other stations in between. Um, it's been a It's been a bit of a bad week on Twitter, I think yeah. it's fair to say. I mean, to be fair, though, when is it a good week on Twitter? And I love Twitter. Ooh, um, there was probably a week in the London Olympics in 2012. I know, actually, and I know I've mentioned this before, but that day when we all watched a puddle in Newcastle on Periscope, that was a great day on Twitter. That I was don't still one think of the I, I think that may have been before I joined Twitter, <laughs> if I'm honest. You missed a great day. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but a lot of people have had quite a lot of, 
I don't know, hopes riding on this report, haven't they? Which is pure, like, presumably why the feeling is so strong. I think there was, a, there was a sort of unjustified sense that there might be some kind of dramatic, you might even say Sorkin-esque conclusion to this whole thing where Mueller would give a dramatic press conference and announce that all the supporting cast of characters in Trump world had been arrested that morning. And by the way, a letter recommending impeachment was wending its way to the House Judiciary Committee and the president would be removed in the sort of closing credit sequence. Uh, and of course, that's not how things work in the real world. Mm. And, you know, Again, I, I can't stress this enough. We have not seen the actual Mueller report, and the actual Mueller report may in fact be a predicate for impeachment, although I think it's unlikely, especially given that removal would require 20 Republican senators to vote to remove a president of their own party, which has, mm. I mean, no historical precedent. It's somewhat beyond no historical precedent. Do you think there's also like a bit of a danger that – because collusion is not the same as – Russia trying to manipulate an election. And but, the the letter from Barr made it clear that Russia did try to manipulate yeah. the election. But that that will potentially be sort of forgotten. Yeah. In, in the same I mean I think I think it's it's sort of like the well regulated militia part of the Second Amendment. You know, you, you focus on certain words and you leave out other words and mm. you know it's it's it always reminds me of the onion a headline, uh, area man passionate defender of what he imagines constitution to be. <laughs> <laughs> everyone sees everyone sees what they they want to see and sees the sort of the parts of the narrative that support their pre-existing conclusions. My favorite onion article ever though was struggling feminist movement succeeds after hiring man. <laughs> <laughs> All it needed was a bloke to sort of get some stuff together, talk to his mates, you know, oh, it's so good. Um and yeah, obviously in our world we've had continuing Brexit fun after the two meaningful two vote. <laughs> um, we're now on what? Meaningful vote three Tokyo Drift? I don't know. God knows. Yeah, then there's going to be, what would the next one in the sequence be? Uh, just meaningful? <laughs> yeah, just meaningful. <laughs> Maybe like... Sp- vote five. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I've who knows? Burko being like spicy in the corner as well. Love it. <laughs> Although everyone conveniently forgets that he's been accused of bullying for most of his staff. Um, oh, the big march. Did you go on the march? Uh, I didn't. I didn't because... I wish I had a, good, a better excuse, but we were both exhausted and we neither of us wanted to bring the baby into a million people with extremely limited changing facilities. <laughs> so we didn't go. We were there in spirit. Yeah. It's because you don't believe in democracy. Oh, no, true. you do believe in democracy. I, I, I believe in a specific expression of democracy, yeah. <laughs> which is one referendum on one day. Yeah. And no other expressions of democracy. Uh, yeah, I did go. Um, I think my favorite sign was... What will this mean for my 12 Spanish boyfriends? <laughs> so shout out to that woman who looked slightly uncomfortable the entire way through that march. But I you know. think we, we need a, a comprehensive ranking of American versus British protest signs. I th- That's true, because there were some really good ones from America. Like, you know, that famous one of the guy holding the sign that says, you know, I'm not normally a sign guy, but geez. Yeah, that, that is exactly <laughs> what I was thinking of. Yeah. He, is, he can be our champion. Yeah. He can be our, we will we'll have a, a trial by combat yeah. of hilarious protest signs and he will be our Jamie Lannister. Yeah, I would say like quite earnest signs really on this march. Yeah, it, it did have a... A, a sort of very earnest, I mean, again, from what I saw on mm. social media, it did seem like quite an earnest approach to things. Which... There was there was another good one, although I have mixed feelings about this. You know, does does Brexit spark joy? 
But I'm increasingly feeling that things not sparking joy doesn't don't spark joy either now. That that feels like a very November 28th joke. <laughs> we're, we're, we're three to four months worth of memes past the Marie Kondo jokes. Everyone's Marie Kondoed now. <laughs> I have not actually, but I probably should. Um okay, well I should probably explain who we've got on the on the podcast this week. So Ben in Toronto is speaking to Rajesh Basra who is um, based at NTU in Singapore and um, contributed to the IA Special Issue on Indian Foreign Policy in 2017. And they're talking about recent India-Pakistan strife. And then I spoke to Emily Taylor, who, I mean, is a dream, you would agree, Jacob, I think, um, is an associate Absolutely. fellow with... <laughs> he was nodding, sorry. <laughs> um, is an associate fellow with the International Security Department here at Chatham House and is also um, editor of the Journal of Cyber Policy and CEO of Oxford Information Labs. And we talked about what this government's trying to do about Facebook regulation and the internet more broadly. And um, it was just a really interesting discussion because she's great. <laughs> yeah, and it's a very, it's a really interesting topic. It's gotten a lot of press in the last couple of years after being a complete sort of um, backwater. Mm. And suddenly people have caught on to just how important this topic is. And she's interesting as well comparing um, the way that the UK are dealing with this regulation and the US because you look at those hearings in the US and nobody knows what the hell they're talking about. Clearly, they can't ask the right questions because they're all 80. Whereas actually her argument is here that um, our MPs are trying really hard to properly get to grips with the issues. The, the, the quality of the questioning from the DCMS parliamentarians mm. here is really quite a lot higher yeah. than the quality of questions asked by uh, even senators in the US. Mm. Um, but I mean, one thing that struck me watching various congressional hearings recently is how few Congress people, in a body heavily populated by former prosecutors, how few Congress people actually know how to conduct a proper examination of a witness. But do you think that's because they don't really want to examine that particular witness? <clears throat> uh, I, think, I think it's because they have all decided that what they get out of a hearing is uh, video, f shareable video footage of themselves grandstanding. Mm. Um, ironically, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who has a bigger me social media following than, you know, pick another hundred members of Congress combined, and she's the one who's actually asking sort of short, sharp questions mm. and letting witnesses answer. It's, a, it's an interesting contrast. She's so great. When can she run? Uh, so she is constitutionally eligible to run for president in 2024, but only by a couple of months. Okay, so you've got to hold on till then. Right, let's have a listen. Right, so here I am at the International Studies Association Conference in Toronto, Canada. Uh, we're here in the Sheraton Hotel. It's absolutely packed. Thousands and thousands of people here talking about international relations and political science. And it's been really interesting. It's been a bit crazy. There's been a lot of meetings, a lot of panels, but we're surviving. And I'm joined today, really excited to say, by Rajesh Basra, who is a visiting professor in the South Asia program at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. Rajesh has written for international affairs in the past, uh, most recently in January 2017. That's right. I think that's right. Um, and uh, is also a, a member of our international advisory board. Uh, Rajesh, thanks so much for joining us. 
You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Are you enjoying conference? Very much. Great. Um, so I thought it would be interesting uh, to have a bit of a chat about uh, the recent flare-up, the recent tensions between India and Pakistan earlier this year. Um, get an expert's view on exactly what was going on there and how it fits into wider India-Pakistan relations. Um, so obviously this took place in February 2019. What was the cause of the flare-up? The cause of the flare-up was basically it's one of a series of such incidents that have been taking place for at least now, well, 25 years more maybe. Uh, essentially, you know, you have terrorist groups uh, based on Pakistan soil which have been attacking targets in India from time to time, sometimes devastatingly as in Mumbai in 2008. And uh, the Indians have found it very difficult to counter these attacks because uh, essentially Pakistan has uh, the shield of nuclear weapons, right. and so India cannot use force. Okay, cool. And so what exactly happened in February? Uh, in February, at a place called Pulwama, where there was a military establishment, the uh, Jaish-e-Mohammed, one of these terrorist groups which has a base in Pakistan, uh, attacked the Indian facility and uh, quite a lot, large number, several dozen Indian uh, personnel were killed. Okay, right. And how did India respond? India responded uh, by means of uh, uh, airstrikes against uh, Pakistan targets uh, a few days later. And uh, that was a one-off kind of uh, response which uh, involved, according to the Indian side, because the facts are not very clear, it involved striking at uh, terrorist camps within uh, Pakistan. Okay. The difference was that whereas formerly it was believed that these uh, camps exist in uh, the Pakistan-held portion of Kashmir, was not very far from the border, uh, this particular place which was attacked uh, called Balakot uh, was deep inside Pakistan territory, actually not in Kashmir itself, but uh, in uh, uh, the province called Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. Okay, right. And what's the status of uh, Jaishi Mohammed? Because, uh, I mean, that, uh, I mean, the attack. I guess they're non-state actor, right? So, what was the just? What was the thinking behind sort of punishing Pakistan? Uh, basically, I mean, Jaisi Muhammad has a base there okay. within Pakistan, as do other groups like the Lashkar-e-Taiba, and uh, these groups are used by Pakistan to apply pressure on India right. to basically make concessions on Kashmir. Okay, and why is Kashmir such a contested area? Kashmir, that's an old story, but essentially when India was, uh, when India became independent in 1947, it was divided into Pakistan and India. And at that time, the Muslim League, which was a major political party uh, claiming to represent Muslims, uh, demanded a separate state uh, comprising Muslim majority areas. 
so what happened at the time was that kashmir actually uh, came into india because it had an independent maharaja who actually chose to join india pakistanis felt that the partition was incomplete since kashmir or what is called jammu and kashmir right. uh, is a muslim majority territory and therefore they felt that rightly it should belong to pakistan right but uh, since the maharaja had acceded to india it became a bit of a tricky question and uh, the problem became worse because uh, soon after independence uh, there were a kind of military attacks uh, backed by the pakistan government initially led by non military persons but uh, without the support of the pakistan government it wouldn't have been possible uh, as a result of which there was a war okay so this war went on for the entire year 1948 and in the end uh, pakistan uh, obtained control of about roughly one third of kashmir and india the rest and so that remains the status quo largely uh, since then okay yeah and have there been uh, regular flare ups since then around that is it still very much a contested space it is very much contested space because there were uh, there was war in 1965 then there was another war in 1971 there have been numerous crises there was a major uh, uh, crisis crisis in 1999 when uh, called the kargil crisis some call it a war but to my mind it was a crisis but uh, the problem remains largely unchanged since then okay right and um, you mentioned earlier that there were uh, terrorist attacks in mumbai in 2008 yes. um was was that related to kashmir also yes i mm-hmm. mean uh, basically it was part you see uh, pakistan has a strategy being a revisionist state it has a strategy of applying pressure on india through the use of proxies right i mean this is not a strategy that is unique to pakistan other states have used it in other circumstances and uh, it is basically a low cost strategy mm. since india does not have the option to strike back through conventional uh, use of conventional forces uh, because of uh, the possession of nuclear weapons by pakistan Okay, so right. they have been able to sustain this. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, right. And so, um, did did India respond differently in 2008 to 2019, or did we see similar strikes? What was the response? No, in 2008 there was uh, no, uh, you know, military response from India. Oh, right. Okay. Because there had been a military response, uh, which was a really big general military mobilization. back in 2001 2002 when uh, there was similar attempt to attack uh, the indian parliament right you know and they made it all the way to the steps of the indian parliament so at that time there was a huge mobilization a 10 month long crisis which led nowhere and i think the lesson from that was that you know you can't really uh, undertake this kind of major military uh, kind of uh, response so they have been struggling to devise a better response which they did not in 2008 but subsequently when another military camp in 
in a place called Uri was attacked. And at that time, uh, the Indians carried out what they called a surgical strike uh, on the ground, where Indian uh, special forces went into Pakistan. Right. Briefly. Uh, okay, so obviously since 2008, uh, India has seen a change in leadership. Um, we have Prime Minister Narendra Modi in charge at the moment. Um, what has been his administration's approach to Pakistan more broadly? Well, his initially, I think there was no major change, actually, because uh, as soon as he became Prime Minister, he actually invited uh, leaders from all the neighboring countries, including Pakistan, to uh, come for his inauguration and uh, try to build bridges, but uh, nothing much actually worked with Pakistan. So increasingly over time, as the attacks kept happening, mm. uh, Modi then uh, felt that you know there's no other option but to try and strike back rather than just keep taking this uh, uh, these attacks uh, and not being able to do anything. Right, okay. Um, and this year there's elections in India. Do you think that uh, Pakistan will be an important issue for voters? Do you think the parties will um, sort of succeed based on their approach to this issue, or do you think it's not really a factor? Well, I'm not a cephalogist, and so I'll be sticking my neck out a bit. <laughs> but uh, personally, I think there will be some attack, uh, will be some effect, I beg your pardon, uh, but mainly in urban areas, okay, the larger, you know, proportion of the population is actually poor, even in the urban areas, and they have other worries uh, to do with employment, to do with availability of food, prices, and so on. So I don't think Pakistan and terrorism is at the top of the list of the majority of people. But then, as I said, I'm not an expert on this. Okay, so it's not really going to be a factor um, necessarily. It will be a factor, but not perhaps as much as uh, some people might hope it is. Ah, okay, interesting. Um, Now, some uh, have argued that uh, Prime Minister Modi's party, the BJP, are um, in some sense anti-Muslim, um, and it's very much about this identity of Hindu nationalism. Um, uh, first, I guess, do you agree? Do you think that do you think the party is anti-Muslim, and what effect has that had with their relationship to sort of other Muslim states around uh, in India's neighbourhood? See. Uh that antipathy towards Muslims is something which is quite strong throughout India. But the BJP is not the only one which is so, but it is more so than the others, Right. say. It is a much deeper problem, a much wider problem. I mean, having lived in the country all this time, I know it. Uh, does it affect relationships uh, with other states? I don't think so. Uh, not as much as... Uh, earlier leaders thought it would, you know. For instance, uh, back in the 60s, 70s, and even 80s, uh, India supported the Palestinians and did not uh, want to have much to do with Israel because of the concern that uh, uh, the Muslims, you know, would not like it and it would have some electoral impact. But at some point, you know, there was a a realization that uh, that's not how politics works. And that, in fact, 
if if the Egyptians can make a deal with the Israelis, then what's the problem with Indians making a deal with them? And so uh, I think India's relationship with uh, Western, uh, with uh, sorry, uh, Middle Eastern countries has actually improved considerably, gone much closer, particularly with the UAE, with the Saudis. Uh, so uh, I don't see any problem arising from this uh, uh, anti-Muslim uh, attitude of the BJP. I think states are pretty hard-boiled in some ways. Mm-hmm. So. No, pragmatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay, yeah. Um, now, one other interesting dynamic uh, that actually has been written about rather a lot in international affairs recently is, is uh, China's ambitions in the region. Um, and Pakistan has been quite a large recipient from uh, the One Belt and One Road uh, project. And uh, they've had, I think, is it a port particularly that has had a lot of investment? In um, mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and... I just wondered, has that uh, investment in Pakistan, has that altered the dynamics in the region? Um, Is India quite opposed to that? Well, India is suspicious about many things, including China's increasing economic presence around it. You know, it sees all of this as a potential uh, sort of circle of containment. But I think it would be a mistake to uh, look at India's rejection of this Belt and Road Initiative as a rejection of Chinese investment. On the contrary, uh, Chinese investment in India has been growing very rapidly. Right. Okay. And that process has actually coincided with the increase in tensions between India and China. Mm. So it's quite a complicated situation there. Strategically, there is a complication, uh, there is tension, but economically, there is increasing interdependence and cooperation. Right. And uh, I think uh, China is China's rank as a kind of uh, uh, source of uh, FDI into India has risen steadily and looks like at the rate it is going could become even number one. Right. Yeah. So uh, that's some. For example, the current uh, cumulative investment is about 1.6 billion according to official sources, but unofficial sources say it is maybe five times as much. That is unofficially because a lot of the investment comes through third countries. Okay. Yeah. So the Indians, India's problem with the China-Pakistan economic corridor is strategic mm. because that corridor passes through Kashmir. Okay. And that is a disputed territory. Yes. So India does not want in any way to legitimize uh, Pakistan's possession of uh, that portion of Kashmir which it holds through which the corridor passes. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. That's really interesting. And just to bring it back to Kashmir as we draw to a close now, um, what, I mean... Obviously, this is sort of stargazing into the future, but what prospects do you think there are of a peaceful resolution in Kashmir? Like, are there options on the table to lessen the conflict in this area? Uh, it's, it's very difficult to say. I think it, there is a deep problem, and that is, if you look, if I may put it another way, if you look at uh, the history of India-Pakistan negotiations, the one time in recent memory when uh, there appeared to be a serious movement towards some kind of understanding on Kashmir was when it was decided that the both sides 
would not actually uh, pursue their claim so vigorously but would uh, focus on loosening the line of control in Kashmir where the which divides the troops so uh, as a result of that i mean there was agreement on increasing the flow of uh, uh, goods and people across the line of control but in the end uh, that didn't last because uh, president musharraf who was actually pushing it from the pakistan side his uh, political star went on the decline and so that pretty much put an end to it but the only i think it is really significant that that took place after two major crises in 1999 and 2001 2002 and third when the military was in power so unless the military is in power and feels the push from crisis situations so here's a question difficult to to see that happen i actually in the fall rajesh bajwa thank you very much for joining us my pleasure So I'm here with Emily Taylor, who is many things, um, but CEO of Oxford Information Labs, an associate fellow of Chatham House, and the editor of the Journal of Cyber Policy. Hello, Emily. Hello. Thanks so much for joining us. The journal is quite new. It is. We published our first issue in 2016, and we now publish three a year. Uh, so this is our fourth year of operation. Mm-hmm. but we're growing really rapidly in our readership so last year our our number of downloads went from 30,000 just under 30,000 the year before to over 80,000 oh, so we had a really great boost and we um we have an all female editorial team yeah. which is unusual in such a technical area and we always want female authors yeah. and uh, we have had quite a bit of success in encouraging female authors as That's well. That's great. And was it because there was you felt there was a sort of gap in the academic market? Well, so part of trying to get your head around the whole internet world and the impact of technology, you have to almost you have to take a cross-disciplinary approach and that involves not just taking cybersecurity but also looking at other policy aspects such as freedom of expression such as gender such as um internet of things but also thinking about you know there there's great academic research going on i mean i started in this field 20 years ago mm-hmm. and it was very much you know if you wanted to find out anything it was very much an oral tradition you had to go and talk to people because yeah. you couldn't read anything about it now there's a wonderful wealth of academic scholarship but there are also people who are working in the industry who might be working in institutions who are actually doing policy at the cutting edge they they may not think of themselves as policy makers but they are because mm. they're having to implement policies and make decisions which back in the day would have been taken by governments or regulators in the upcoming edition there's a great interview because you spoke to somebody quite important yes um we spoke with Damien Collins who's chaired the um DCMS the Department of Culture Media and Sports Committee on fake news in fact it started being the fake news committee 
but they changed their name as they learned more about it. But it was really um, wonderful to speak to Damien Collins. He's really actively got into the subject, and I think the other committee members did as well. It was quite... I felt it was quite an ordeal even watching some of the question and answer sessions as people gave evidence. I felt quite sorry for them. Really? Because they were being questioned by people who were very good really well briefed, really on top of the subject and gave them no place to hide. And there was a very big contrast, I felt, between the the way that this committee approached its witnesses and approached its questioning compared to, say, the European Parliament and the, the hearings um, in the US, where there were much more set pieces and the witnesses were able to run the show much more. If they turned up. If they turned up. So... One of the theories, one of the conspiracy theories around why Mark Zuckerberg didn't choose to show up to the DC Mess Committee was because he knew he would get a really hard time and poor old Richard Allen uh, did not have a great time in front of that committee. So now, what is it sort of focusing on? Well, fake news was such a buzzword just after the 2016 elections. It's not surprising that the committee started with that focus, but... Uh, as I was speaking with Damien Collins, he described how very quickly they moved their their concern. You know, so you you start thinking, oh, fake news, it's really awful, we must get rid of it. And as soon as you start down that path, you end up in a very uncomfortable grey area and potentially threatening area to freedom of expression and a lot of the values that we hold dear. Uh a lot of so-called fake news is not fake at all. It's just sensationalised or it's been... They've added a clickbaity type of title. And what the committee... The journey that they went on was that they very quickly understood that the real damage is being done by the hyper-targeting of partisan content and the way that sort of without really either the people who are targeted being aware or the general public being aware, mm. there's an, there's, there are undercurrents, if you like, <laughs> of, um, of messaging that is very specifically uh, designed to appeal to its audiences. And those audiences might be very, very small. They might be sitting in marginal seats. They might be um, people who you want to deter from voting mm. by convincing them that, that there is no point. And likewise... One of the things that, that I was speaking to Damien Collins about was whether whether there's been too much emphasis on advertising. Advertising is visible. You can put a dollar sign or a pound sign in front of it. And one of the things that struck me observing it is actually that the amounts being spent on advertising have not been that great. But the power and the reach of these operations has been immensely effective um, so there's a, a, a sort of synergy going on between uh, paid-for content and organic content. Mm. If you understand how the algorithms and the platforms work, then you can design your stuff and with your, with your bot army or with your real followers or a combination of the two, you can make sure that your stuff's engaged with, that it's got lots of likes, lots of shares, lots of comments, and then it's going to start appearing on people's timelines. And the algorithms will do your work for you because our, our, our timelines are not neutral. Mm. They are specifically designed for us in a way that I think very few people are still aware of. 
And even if you work using these platforms, they're constantly tweaking them. They're constantly changing. Like, you know, it's, it's, even if it's your job, it's quite difficult to follow. So if it's not your job, it's impossible, surely. I think so. And, you know, a sobering thing is that while a lot of policy wonks and politicians and everybody are all up in arms and people are hashtag delete Facebook, mm. last year was Facebook's most profitable year e ever, its profits went from just over four billion to just under seven billion in that year, the year of Cambridge Analytica. Mm. And so we have to accept that, you know, when things are fun, when they're well designed, when they do keep us in touch with loved ones and friends, we might not always do what we say we would like to do. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to get on sort of the regulation side in mm. a second, but the thing that really struck me recently was there was this um uh, survey that said, you know, the majority of fake news is shared by people over 50. Yes. Um, so, I mean, because millennials are blamed for a lot of things. Yes. <laughs> but actually, the younger generations tend to be more wary. Yes, and actually a lot of digital literacy programmes, which are essential, you know, are aimed at young people. Now... We've had these technologies, we've had social media mainstreaming for 10 years or so, so there's a generation of young adults who've never really known anything different. Mm. And they've also gone through the, the personal, private torture of understanding when it's a good idea and when it's not such a good idea to post that picture or make that message. And that's the way that they have explored boundaries as they've been growing up. For older people who are perhaps um, of the generation where, you know, we all remember what it was like on dial-up, we all remember what it was like with no internet, and so this all feels new. So those digital literacy programmes need to be targeting the silver surfers, mm. as we used to be called. I do agree with you. I think young people in particular probably understand how the platforms work a little bit better than mm. their parents or grandparents. And when it comes to regulation, I mean, you are talking about enormous global co like companies that don't really sit in one particular jurisdictional space. How do you go about doing that? It's really difficult. You know, the ideal, if you want an international solution, the ideal thing would be to get the platforms to adopt it voluntarily. So one of the studies that we did last year at Oxford Information Labs, we... Um, we were looking at the announcements that the platforms have made since 2016 and also looking at their terms. Mm. There's been a huge number of announcements. We're going to change this. Our algorithms are changing. We're getting more people, blah, blah, blah. So there, there's a lot of noise. It's much harder to determine whether or not there's been some real change. Mm. It would be the ideal approach if platforms could do it voluntarily, but there are so many disincentives for them. And this comes through in the DCMS final report, which was published um, subsequently uh, to my conversation with Damien Collins. And they talk about the fact that, you know, in a way, all of these fake accounts, uh, Facebook announced that they got rid of a billion fake um, pages on, on Facebook, a billion. Mm. There are so many disincentives for them to do so because they're selling advertising based on audience number and targeting and actually, one of the, the things that, that is almost an, an aside in the report is that they're recommending that our competition and markets authority look at mis-selling 
of advertising, if the audiences are mainly not real, right. then how is that actually worth spending money on? It would be ideal to get the companies to do it themselves. They're not doing it, or they're not, their response has not been adequate, and there are also uh, major threats to their business model if mm. they really went down it, that path. And so I think where the DCMS committee ha- ended up is saying, well, we want the platforms to do more, but we want them to be overseen by an independent regulator. They've called out Ofcom here mm-hmm. as their choice, and it will be. It remains to be seen what the government uh, does, if anything. A couple of years ago, there was um, there were there was sort of an increase in abuse on Facebook, mm-hmm. and um, I think especially towards women online. I mean, we won't even get started on Twitter, but as a result, Facebook did sort of up their reporting on um, and blocking on those things because they realised that if people didn't want to hang out there, <laughs> they wouldn't be able to make any money. Mm. But with something like fake news, it's difficult because it's not the consumer isn't necessarily directly affected by it. Yes, or they might not be aware of it. Yeah. You, you know if you're being targeted for racial abuse or gender-based abuse. And... Actually, the platforms have all had substantial human workforces for many years that they have not really wanted to acknowledge because they've been sitting in this legal uh, legal loophole, if you like, yeah. of um, being classified as an intermediary. So they're not classified as publishers. Mm. Again, the DCMS report is saying they're somewhere in the between. They're not classically publishers. Uh, But they're not neutral platforms either because they do uh, curate content. Mm -hmm. They do also take down content. They have a large human workforce. They have reporting mechanisms. They are taking responsibility. So they're somewhere in the middle. We had a great article on this in the journal by Mark Bunting, um, the last issue, about about this sort of dilemma of platform or publisher. They're clearly somewhere... Something like both, mm. but something like neither as well. It's also their amazing ability to say, well, especially Twitter, we can't, we can't do certain things. Mm. And yet, you look at Twitter in Germany, where obviously they have they have very very strict laws on um, propagating Nazi or very very far right terms or theories, and it, it just doesn't happen. Right. So you they know, can so do it. Yes. There's a lot of you know, I've. I've worked in the internet for 20 years and there's a lot of we can't do that because it'll break the internet but we can at the same time do a lot of things for technical reasons. We also know what broke the internet and that was Kim Kardashian. Yes, yes, (laughs) yes, exactly. So, you know, sometimes breakages can come from unexpected sources. (laughs) But actually the the German Nets DG law has been held up and is sort of praised in a way by by the DCMS committee but it's a little bit of a scary way to go mm. because you're saying unless you get this content down within, I don't know, 24, 48 hours, then you're going to get a massive fine. Um, it works in one way, but it can overwork. And mm. you're what you're doing is you're incentivizing the platforms to get rid of absolutely everything. So right. you could have a piece of hate speech or Nazi propaganda, which goes, but then also all of the conversation about that or criticism of that will also go as well. And there's, so we need to be really careful about not creating over incentives 
for the platforms to go too far. And in fact, I really question whether it's a good idea to have the, these primarily advertising platforms as our arbiter mm. of free speech in this in this age. I think that we should be stepping up a bit more and helping them uh, to outsource those processes, make sure those processes are really transparent, that they conform with rule of law type of things, mm. that they have appeals and that the decisions are taken by people who don't have conflicts and who, who are not all sitting with PTSD getting through however many thousand of these images and horrible things a day. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's absolutely horrendous. It, you look at what, how the Met deals with their staff who are, who are dealing with, you know, really, really terrible child pornography cases or whatever. They're very, very clear systems on how long you can watch things for and what you do afterwards. Facebook and uh, Twitter sort of moderators do not have that at all. No, well, I think that is one of the um, consequences of being a hidden workforce mm. for so many years. They've been around for a long time, but the platforms have not wanted to acknowledge them until it suddenly made sense uh, to say, oh, yes, we have these human content moderators. Don't worry about regulating us on fake news. But you're right. I... I visited the Internet Watch Foundation's offices many years ago and was taken through all of the procedures that they have to protect their staff, to ensure that they're, they're only viewing that uh, child abuse images in work under very, very uh, controlled circumstances and that there's no homeworking. There is, um, there is also compulsory, um, or was at the time, compulsory counselling mm. for staff. And this is the way that we need to protect the people who are protecting us. Yeah. And so, sorry, bloody always talk about Brexit, but Brexit's happening, yeah. apparently. Because um, <laughs> my feeling on this stuff is that you need large bodies to try and regulate large corporations. Mm. So, I mean, you mentioned before that Europe hasn't been that successful. I didn't feel that the European Parliament's hearings were right. successful, but I feel actually that the European lawmakers, the Commission, have been doing a lot of very good thinking okay. around this and have actually shown themselves pretty courageous in standing up to um, the platforms. Uh, uh, they've been using competition law. I don't think they've been using competition law enough, mm -hmm. but it's um, it's a lurker that ought to be explored more, particularly as Facebook combines and um, more seamlessly with uh, WhatsApp and Instagram. You're creating a huge data behemoth there, yeah. uh, and so I do look to the EU, and I a lot of the scholars that I speak to in the United States also look to the EU as a sort of beacon. For, you know, the GDPR, it has its critics, but it has actually effectively changed practices in many of these US organisations. And that hadn't happened before in the 20 years before that. When you're on your own um, with perhaps a smaller economy, there's going to be many difficult decisions. And fundamentally, technology type of things do take a back seat compared to health, education and a lot of other policy areas which nationally are demanding attention and demanding resources. As we go into this future, I'm worried about us just 
blindly handing over so many aspects of our deeply personal human relationships. I was talking to someone who works on one of the big platforms and she was saying to me, <clears throat> people have to understand that in Silicon Valley, nothing gets done unless the engineers are excited about it. And it's so true. I work with engineers and, you know, who are wonderful, uh, but nothing gets done unless the engineers are excited about it. That's fine. Are those engineers largely men? Yes, they are. And, you know, all sorts of diversity problems mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley. But also thinking about what's cool and what's neat, what's going to be pushing the boundaries of, you know, how can you create a a computer that is as human-like as possible is a, an incredibly challenging technical um, problem to solve. Mm. It might not be what we need. What we need as people in societies is for uh, everyone to feel like their life is going to be worthwhile and that they'll be able to provide for their families, that they will be able to live a good life and that they have a prospect of some sort of, you know, whatever happens to motivate them. Mm. We've already seen over the last 30 years that most middle-income jobs have disappeared forever as a result of automation. Mm. The professions are next because, in fact, computers are much better if you start to do probabilistic type of um, uh, um, algorithms um, a computer is going to be much better at predicting, for example, my profession, the outcome of a law case mm. than the fallible memory of somebody who was at law school several <laughs> decades ago. What I think we need to do is to think about how these incredible technologies and exciting technologies can enhance our human condition and stop chasing these unicorns and rainbows of replacing people. Mm. Technology is there for people, or should be. It should be there to do things like help us to cope with climate change, help us to cope with uh, the changes in our workforce and what it means. You know, why is it that we're thinking about Tay, the AI developed by Microsoft, and yet it's still not possible for many women to get affordable childcare so that they can return to work after having a baby? We we're not really solving some of the, <laughs> you know, the things that really make a difference to people. We are recording this on International Women's Day, so <laughs> it's topical. I think sometimes the answer to that is because if it affected men, we would have a proper solution to that problem. Maybe so. Um, well, personally, I never think that anybody goes in to their job to do harm. No. You know, by and large... Like, bad things happen through to, through, due to incompetence or unplanning. You know, it's, it's largely not malice. But the fact that all of these technologies are being designed in a way that actually exclude a lot of people, the biases that they have, how racist, it's, for example, some, some programs can be. I mean, I'm appallingly unknowledgeable about this stuff. I didn't realise till recently that if, you, if you're black, you have to turn your hands upwards under a soap dispenser because it reacts more to like they react to lighter skin wow and it doesn't work if you do it the other way around you know and that's not malice that's just clearly something designed by a white engineer who hadn't mm. thought about it yes. so how do you is there a way that one can regulate <laughs> like a broadening of viewpoints 
I think that a lot of the technology companies know that they've got a diversity problem and are trying to address it. There were some reports last year that Amazon, for example, threw out its AI um, recruitment uh, app or whatever. I mean, anybody who's done recruitment yeah. would be drawn to this idea yeah. that you could dream. magically find the right person yeah. by by magic. Unfortunately, what what um, an AI, which was trained on all previous successful candidates at uh, Amazon, did was it threw up more of the same. Yeah. And so they found that they had no women on shortlists and nobody of colour. So they threw that out mm. and well, they started good. again. Yeah. And, you know, so we, I don't know whether it's something that can be achieved through regulation alone there also has to be a will to make it change you know a lot has changed in the workplace because of regulation as well and people in in uh, doing so but also as technology gets more clever there's a lot many 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 more variables Mm. many more potential consequences or outcomes to a particular program or a particular i'm sure that um well i i'm I remember sitting in 2006, so a long time ago, at the first Internet Governance Forum, and there on the stage were Vint Cerf and Bob Kahn, who invented the protocol that made the Internet possible. Mm -hmm. And I could see them sitting in the room, and I knew that they were looking at all these thousands of people going, I never thought it would be like this. I never thought it would be that big. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of these runaway successes that we see have have spawned problems that are societal and have behaved in ways that their designers never anticipated. And I think that part of what we have to do is to accept that we can't ultimately control everything Mm. and that we have to deal with the problems. But we also, you know, one of the worries I have, you asked me about my worries, one of the worries I have is that the big guys in, in the tech world there's almost a kind of gamerish mentality. So you look at um, Mark Zuckerberg's pivot on privacy the other day, his 3,000-word essay on how it reminded me of the Bob Dylan song, you know, I'll change, I swear. (laughs) But uh, ultimately, the same song's like, what's the point of changing horses in midstream when you're making more profit than ever? Mm. If you can lull your critics into thinking that you've really you really are going to change but at the same time not changing that seems to still be the goal especially if your critics don't fully understand the problem right on and actually it's harder than you think you know we did a study of the terms and conditions of the platforms who reads them no one well we read them when you do if you do read them you're like wow, this is so nice and they're so good and everything that happens is for such great reasons. And then you have to sit back and go, what am I not being told Mm. that I know is happening? And then you think about different use cases and you realise that they're all permitted by the terms. They're just cleverly drawn to make you feel good. What do you you mean by... So you can set all your privacy settings and exclude absolutely everything and not be not be blah 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 no friends of friends no this no that and you feel really empowered can you stop yourself being profiled by that platform no 
Can you stop your data being collected and stored by that platform beyond, you know, the moment in which you do your thing? No. Can you stop it being shared with third-party advertisers? No. You might be able to, in some platforms, opt out of targeted advertising, but that does not mean that you are not being profiled. Mm. Well, they know what they're doing, don't they? They're very good. They're very good. <laughs> we can say they're very they're good. Very good. <laughs> um, well, Emily, thanks so much for coming to speak to us. Um, you should Thank you. have a look at Cyber Journal and um, the interview with Damien Collins. We will put a link under this. Um, and, yeah, it's a great thing. And an all-female board and team. It's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Agnes. Great. Well, that's um, sort of it for this this episode. Uh, Jacob, while you're here, is there anything you want to say? You know, we're at the end of the episode. People might not get this far. You can be loose. <laughs> uh, I, 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 was I not loose before? I, I feel like there are at least a couple of things that I said that might get me into trouble. <laughs> we can edit. We won't edit. We won't edit. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. What are you looking forward to happening? Yeah, I'm going to ask you, actually. A couple of questions. Let's mm-hmm. be positive. What are you positive about at the moment? <laughs> what am I positive about in the moment? Don't uh, say to the children. <laughs> Please don't say the next generation. I, I, I like to think that you have a slightly higher sense of my <laughs> ability to speak without trite sort of uh, endlessly repeated phrases. But people always say the next generation. I think they think that's really positive, but it just puts the blame on everybody else. I think what I'm positive about is the the ongoing degree of political engagement. I mean, it's, it's kind of a... Speaking of trite things, I mean, everyone talks about, oh, everything's awful, 2019 is worse than 2018, which is worse than 2017, which is worse than 2016. Um, But I think that there is a sense in which people are actually paying attention to politics. Mm. And it's not that necessarily things are worse. It's that people are aware of them. They're talking about them. And when people are talking about them and affected by them, there is impetus for change. Mm. I think there's a, a real danger of complacency when political leadership projects an outward air of competence because if you think about the sort of the portrayals of of, uh, politicians that we have in popular culture it's not house of cards they're not sort of cynical manipulative machiavellis it's not west wing not everybody is a you know starry-eyed idealist it's veep or the thick of it it's Mm. it's people just kind of flailing and bumbling uh their way through and you know trying to just get to the end of the day and i think that the sense that or the recognition that people that politics is imperfect and that uh, there actually needs to be an engagement. You can't just say, I don't care about politics. It doesn't matter to me. Of course it matters to you. It matters mm-hmm. to everybody. It infuses everything we do and we all have to engage with it. And I think we're getting to that appropriate level of recognition of how important this stuff is and that it actually requires something from all of us. Yeah. Because also, <clears throat> I mean, if anything... Like if this at least Brexit negotiations has shown anything, it's all these conspiracy theorists who think that lizards are running the world. Like, I think they'd be doing it better, maybe. Don't you? <laughs> well, I don't know. A, it's it's a funny question because people, we are one of the institutions that gets 
tagged with the uh, we get letters we get letters i love the letters we, if it, we get some there's some google results if you da- dive deep enough in that, that we're all lizard people uh we are not lizard people we would have better coffee if we were lizard people. I, I was gonna say our pensions would probably be a bit better <laughs> i feel like the lizard people have a fairly solid pension plan um it's just an enforced f- form of saving jacob it doesn't <laughs> doesn't need to be a pension <laughs> yes just just to put it on record we are not lizard people uh it's the sort of thing a lizard person would say. <laughs> exactly the sort of thing a lizard person would say. Um, but I mean, you know, I, I think ordinary people who are aware that, you know, you and I and our colleagues are not lizard people just kind of sort of spent a lot of time thinking that everything's fine and the adults are in charge. And then there's this recognition. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about the the Carl Sagan pale blue dot thing where he says, you know, this this tiny image of the earth in this utter darkness is a reminder that no help is coming from above to save us from ourselves. Mm. And that's in on the surface quite a depressing thing to say, but it's also a call to action. It's a realization that we're we can't expect Robert Mueller or anybody else to swoop in and deliver us from our troubles. Mm. We actually have to do it. And it's hard and grinding and thankless, but that's the only way that things get better. Oh my God, so positive. Um I because yeah, I was thinking about the march on Saturday, like do you think Farage would have predicted that he would have got one million people ish to come out onto the streets in a pro European to like create a pro-European sentiment in the UK, I don't think so. No, that's no. Aston- like that's that's new. That it's, is new. it's it's absolutely new, and I don't know. I I don't know what Farage thinks about that. I don't. I never know with someone like him how much to ascribe to cynicism and how much to ascribe to to blinkeredness. Mm. Um, but I think I, I would be surprised if he weren't surprised by the the vehemence and the sort of. And vehemence is the wrong word, but the extent of the expression of pro-European sympathy. I think he probably thought that the the pro-European movement was more unwilling to stand up for its beliefs. Yeah. Well, Jacob, thank you so much for coming on no and stepping problem. into Any Ben's time. shoes. I do <laughs> Big think we, shoes to fill. Big shoes to we fill. We should have potentially just done it where we just pretended you were Ben. I, I Yeah, I, I, and the thing is, I can't do an impression of Ben. No. I should have just said, hello, this is Ben Horton. Exactly. Um, I've had voice surgery, and also my personality has changed, and my interests have changed so much, but I am still Ben Horton. <laughs> um, so, in the meantime... You've been listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. <laughs> <laughs>